This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider News. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and today's show is a news show. We are going to take a look at the biggest news stories in insurance and insuretech from the last few weeks. Today, I'm also joined by co-host Nigel Walsh. How are you today, Nigel? I'm chipper and chirpy, as you've all found out already. (laughs) That's good to hear. Um, As always, we are not alone, but we are joined by some great guests. So first up, we have returning guest Anton Penner, founder of Flock. How are you today, Anton? Very well and excited about today. So can you, before we get into the exciting stuff, or actually start with the exciting stuff, tell us a little bit about Flock. Absolutely. So in a nutshell, we sell drone insurance, but we do it slightly differently to tra- how traditional insurance companies do it. We've got a pay-as-you-fly option, so you can go to an app and buy insurance for an, for an hour. You can buy insurance as if you bought Netflix on a subscription basis, but we also cover large enterprises. So super, super flexible um, drone insurance. We're also um, starting to offer other insurance policies beyond drones, starting with um, insurance for planes. I keep an eye on and what we're about to do. Very exciting. Mm. Thank you for that. Uh, next up, we have another returning guest, Sophie Winwood, who is investor at Anthemis. How are you today, Sophie? Very good. All the better for seeing you guys again. Well, thank you for coming back. Um, can you recap for any listeners who may have missed you on the show previously what Anthemis is and what you guys do and how it relates to insurance? Of course. Um, so Anthemis is a leading fintech and insurtech investor in sort of early stage companies. So we've got over 90 portfolio companies and we're, we're known as one of the most active investors in in insurtech, actually, globally. And um, I work specifically on insurance-related investments. Um, Flock are actually one of our uh, investor investments. Thank you for uh, the disclosure there. Yep. (laughs) The best ever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, I I do kind of uh, sourcing and evaluating of opportunities. Brilliant. Um, And finally, we have Jeremy Wood making his new show debut. Um, Jeremy is the founder and CEO of Legarity Financials. Thank you for joining us today, Jeremy. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about both yourself um, and the company, please? Sure. Well, uh, firstly, uh, Sarah, thank you very much for the invite. It's great to be sitting in this crowd of insurtechs. Me, myself, I'm a startup guy. Uh, I've done five startups over 27 years. And it's great, actually, to be back in this building because we did one exit in this building when UBS were here many years ago. So I know it well. Um, So I'm a startup guy. Uh, We focus on back office, so a little bit different. Most insurtech, fintech firms are looking at the front end, customer engagement, whereas we focus on the back office, so largely finance. And in the insurance world at the moment, the insurance firms on a global basis are going through a lot of change. They have some new compliance uh, and regulation they have to meet in terms of a new accounting standard. And it's probably the biggest change in the back office that they've seen for probably a generation, so for many, many years. So these are big programs where we we enable those new accounting standards. So we're a software house. We do accounting accounting rules. And we tend to deal with complexity. And the insurance world's quite complex in terms of some of the products, Uh, that they sell, and we enable that. So we do compliance, regulation for accounting change, but also enabling these large organizations to be ready for all of this innovation that's coming at the front end. Brilliant. So that's uh, that's legerity. Thank you. Um, Just before we start today, our friends over at Honcho are crowdfunding. If you want to be part of and support the InsureTech revolution, then do check them out on Crowdcube. We'll post the link in the description uh, for the show today. Okay, without further ado, let's get started. So our first story today is that SMEs are increasing insurance for Brexit. So according to the Insurance Times, more than a third of SMEs have increased insurance for Brexit. Um, As the UK prepares to exit the EU at the end of the month, Brexit has had a major impact on businesses with profits falling across the board. Because of that, 34% of SMEs plan to increase their stockpiling this year um, and 35% of firms have increased cover with a knock-on effect on their cash flow. 
During preparations for Brexit, 26% of firms have reported profits dropping and recruitment freezing. Uh, so what are our, our thoughts on this? I mean, it sounds eminently sensible to me, but um, I don't know if anybody else has, a, has more profound thoughts on it. I'm with you. Sensible, right? I mean, if you've got a position of uncertainty, which Brexit has been ultimately for the last couple of years, then you try and uh, protect the downside as much as possible. Now that it's all, I guess, the trains fully left the station and heading to a certain uh, a certain shore, um, you've got to work out where your risks are as an organisation for business continuity. So for any large organisation that's been doing this for, for many, many months and years, uh, you will have a business continuity plan in case of supply chain issue, talent issue, whatever it may be. Uh, it's no surprise that SMEs are getting on the bandwagon uh, now, if not already, to make sure that they've got the right covers in place should they not be able to assemble, distribute or uh, or get their products and services out there. Yeah, I think the worrying side of this is the impact on cash flow. So if you kind of take everything that you just said, Sarah, so profits are falling, so they're not getting that much cash in. They're stockpiling, which means they are buying uh, stock and they're not receiving the revenue for that. And then on top of that, they are increasing their uh, insurance, which means, again, cash going out the door for insurance premiums. And as we've kind of all read, cash flow issues are one of the biggest problems for SMEs. So it is actually quite a worrying situation. And I think that, you know, SMEs are going to have to really start thinking about how they're, they're kind of going to get through this. I guess the, the new formats of um, insurance we're, we're starting to see now could somehow alleviate some of the issues there, right? Like for me, it is almost a demonstrator of what insurance is for, right? As Nigel was saying, we're about to embark on a like super uncertain period. And I say insurance as something that unlocks opportunities while taking care of the downside. So uh, yes, I think I think there are definitely issues with how we've imagined insurance or how we've defined insurance in the past. But nowadays with the, the, the new formats in which we, we can buy insurance or or I don't know, the way the way in which we can pay for insurance, I think we can say this as 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 an opportunity more than a, a challenge, right? I think for me as well, it's it's actually quite reassuring to see because we have done numerous shows on the subject of SMEs um, and and how actually either they find it very hard to find insurance or or they they just don't have it. The fact that you know the thirty five percent of the people who were spoken to for this survey have already made a decision to increase their cover. That's a positive trend because like it or lump it and you know whatever's happening with the economy aside. They need to have insurance of one form or another, you know, well, actually of many forms. But the fact that 35% of them have actually managed to find it and increase their cover is is very positive. D- dare I bang on about it? And Jamie, jump in as well. I think you, you're going to say something. Dare I bang on about it? This is back to education. Do SMEs know what is available and what they should or could have in the result of protecting against certain instances, whether it's uh, labour or cash flow, as you say, or whatever else it might be? And what are the carriers and brokers and everyone else out there doing to make sure they can say, if you're worried about X, these are the things that you can do? So I think I can talk firsthand. You know, I think we're sort of the M in the SME. So we're sort of mid-size firm. Um, I think it will vary between business types. And I think stockpiling, you know, seems to be firms that are maybe in a supply chain or manufacturing side and, and maybe software we have slightly different cost bases, and you know what can you protect against? So um, I think there's a point there, Nigel, in terms of um, awareness. We're certainly not aware um, through our channels of insurance of what potentially is available. Um, and then you could probably, you know, with my sceptical hat on, is that really a value to us for the premiums that we we would pay? Our, our insurance needs are, are relatively simple in terms of as a, as a firm, you have to have sort of all the right covers um, from a supply. We're doing professional indemnity, those type of products. And coming on, when I knew I was coming on this, actually, I did go to our broker and I said, what do we need to do for Brexit to prepare ourselves? And I wrote down his answer, which was quite enlightening, really. And it was, to be honest, it's all up in the air at the moment. No one seems to know what will happen and can't say how it will affect insurance policies. So Wait, that was... Do, that do was, you want to read that out again? Because that is really <laughs> important, right? Really helpful, guys. Well, yeah, I yeah. Asked, <laughs> I, uh, it was a question I asked yesterday when I saw these questions come through to our broker. So if just to, to give you a feel, we've got 
uh, professional indemnity, we've got normal liability, we have travel, we have health. So all those typical policies, you know, we're not the biggest company in the world, but we, we do pay reasonable premiums. And that was my exact question to the broker that we've used for many years. What should we be doing? And his exact words were, to be honest, it's all up in the air at the moment. No one seems to know what will happen and can't say how it will uh, affect insurance policies. So from my perspective, you know, that's, that's... I think I think he's doing the opposite of what Anton just suggested there, where there's, this is a huge opportunity for, yeah. for people to change the way that they're selling insurance, the way that they're educating their customers. And it's Pro, like... Pro. But of all groups, I would have expected the broker group to be... Yeah. Well, trying to sell policies. Yeah, well, not even sell, but, but most up to speed on what the options are and laying out your options for you as an M in the SME organization, uh, Paul, to say, depending on your risk profile, you could consider everything from A through Z, but based on our experience with you, we think the risk to your business is X. Yeah. But we're, we're not getting that. And as you say, as a broker, they are the sales channel. And you would have thought that if would be what If you're a broker and you'd like to get some maybe, help. Then. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm using the wrong broker. But overall, as a, again, going back to our M firm, you know, it's, it, it's not the thing that's keeping me up at night you know, when I look at Brexit and the challenges, um, but awareness of, of how we could mitigate any risks. I think we're probably a lower risk profile than a lot of other businesses, but it's an important thing. All right. Well, I'm going to move <laughs> us on to um, the next story, uh, which is, is uh, one of our more amusing stories today, I think. Uh, death fraudster sentenced to almost six years in jail. So the story comes from Insurance Business Magazine. Uh, fraudster in fake death claim gets jail sentence. So uh, this gentleman, Saeed Bukhari, has been sentenced to five years and seven months in jail after attempting to fake his own death in hopes of claiming insurance money. Convicted in a London Crown Court, the 39-year-old pretended to be his partner, both via email and on the phone, telling his insurance company that he had died from a heart attack in Pakistan. The life insurance claim was worth nearly £1 million. Uh, Not only did Bukhari try and fake his own death and steal hundreds of thousands of pounds from his insurer, he was also brazen enough to impersonate his partner in a bid to progress his claim. Lame, noted acting detective sergeant Mike Monkton. Meanwhile, Bukhari, who pleaded guilty to one count of fraud by false representation, was already serving a seven-year and 11-month prison sentence for unrelated fraud offence. So he was already in prison when he carried out this fraud. Uh, his new sentence will run consecutively to the existing one. I Proper mean, hustler. <laughs> you sound like you have respect for him. <laughs> No, I really don't. <laughs> it is like out of a movie, though, or a sitcom, isn't it? It's I think you can, you can actually go back in time and look for a story like this every year for the last God knows how many years. I'm sure it was last year, a year before last, there was a couple that had a canoe and went mm, canoeing yeah, all around Australia or something like that and faked their own deaths and whatnot and then met up in different parts of the world. Part of me feels quite sad for the guy. Ultimately, if you get to a position where you go, what would drive you to this situation in the first place? Is there something inherently wrong underneath or is it just a sheer desire for the greed to see a, the the grand sum of a million pounds with a chance of going for um you know a couple of calls here or there i mean he uh, he managed to create uh, fake documents including a medical certificate of cause of death and a death registration certificate again whilst in prison quite impressive yeah <laughs> there's there's a lot of resourcefulness going on here if nothing else he obviously didn't have enough, enough to do he needs to get out to the washing aisle or to the cooking aisle or whatever they do down there and stuff so what what i'd also like to know is was his partner male or female because if he if his partner wife. was it was his wife yep. okay okay that is more impressive again how do they catch him uh, I, I assume <laughs> I assume he was trying to impersonate his wife on the phone. Let me let me have a quick look at the details. I, I did have a. It doesn't say how they actually caught them, but they did some checks when the first, when the claim first came in, uh, and then he went on to blame his wife for being the uh, the issue in the first place. So look, I think there's, <laughs> I, as I say, I think you'll see these stories all over the place. Um, I, I like to highlight these from a fraud perspective and say actually our industry has done a really really good job at trying to weed out these things time and time again. And there was a piece of research over Christmas, I think, that showed um, the cost of insurance, the cost of all utility bills over the last 10 years has all gone up bar one thing. And that was actually motor insurance, which declined. And that was all down to industry initiatives focused on whiplash and fraud. So by highlighting these things, it brings down the cost for everyone. 
It does, it does say here, thanks to initial inquiries carried out by the insurer. So the insurer was obviously suspicious um, and their subsequent referral to the IFAD, they were able to uncover the full extent of his fraudulent activity. I mean, you'd love to be the guy working on that case, right? <laughs> I mean, it would be the, the, you know, fun thing, which is like, oh, we caught this guy. Yeah, you know, you've got <laughs> he a, was mil- in prison. <laughs> a million and one different, you know, as you said, you know, uh, false claims for, for whiplash or, you know, I was in an accident and then you just get that one really good case. So from a... Um it would be interesting to know how far it got before mm. it flagged and whether that's sort of an automated or a, a, is it still pretty manual processing claims? That's my sort of, my my experience was more manual, but this is where things should be checked I mean, pretty, faking pretty documents quickly. and that sort of stuff is relatively straight. I, don't, yeah. I, I won't condone it, but you can obviously fake documents online. You almost buy anything you want these days online, right? So it's relatively straightforward to do. How he did it from uh, inside jail is... Is as you say well, resourceful. It's a, an, a, an industry, isn't there? Yeah. Probably around. I'm thinking that. Frank Abanelli and Catch Me If You Can now. Well, I was thinking uh, about that. Um, oh God, I think it's the the most recent Oceans film, which is all women, and it's James Corden who plays the insurance investigator. Oh, yeah, um, and he turns up, and that's his job, and it's the most exciting, uh, it, most exciting case he's ever had to James investigate. James Corden, I'm an insure tech insider. Get in. <laughs> We're nothing if not culturally relevant. Thank you very much. All right, let's let's move it on. Um, so the next story is that two of Australia's biggest insurers have stopped selling insurance in fire-affected areas. So this came from The Guardian. Um, Suncorp and IAG temporarily stopped selling insurance in fire-affected areas of Victoria and New South Wales. So those are the two states worst affected by uh, the most recent bushfire crisis down under. Um, as of 1.30 on Tuesday the 14th of January, Suncorp had 41 postcodes in Victoria and six in, six in New South Wales under embargo. Um, embargoes are an industry practice when insurers decide either not to sell new policies in a disaster area or to deny claims on new policies in such areas. Uh, basically, it's done to stop people panic buying insurance at the last moment before their homes are destroyed. Um, both companies review their embargoes daily and spokespeople have said that the number of embargoes could change rapidly depending on how the situation shifts. Uh, we are thankfully over the worst of the fires for the time being in Australia, but um, the way things are going, there's, there's no sign that they won't come back. Uh, they're only a little bit into their summer at this point. Um, IAG spokesperson said the company would still sell insurance to embargoed areas, but customers won't be able to make a claim for specific risks. Uh, yeah. I mean, I understand the insurer's point of view. I also think if you live in those parts of Australia, then, you know, you, you know you're where you're living, you know you're at risk. Um, but what do you do about the people who... This is, I, I think there's some par- parallels here. So, so firstly, you feel sorry, you know, it's like a bad situation, um, but it brings in a whole whole bunch of things, doesn't it? So commercially, they're operating as insurers do, and and on one side, you can understand that they're commercial organisations. Morally, you feel you know sorry for the people that are suffering, but there was an analogy back to uh, the UK. So in two thousand and fourteen, with the floods around where I live, or on just on on the Thames. And similar situation. It was, you know, high risk area, not seen as high risk at the time. Um, and embargoes, people didn't pay up, people <laughs> coming to the market late for insurers. And ultimately, the government set up this thing called Flood Re, which was funded, funded partly by the industry, but partly by government. We've talked about Flood and, Re quite a few times and, on the show. And yeah. then that gives them this high risk, you know, for high risk people that can't get pre, uh, cover elsewhere, it gives them a route. And I think, you know, so so it brings in a whole bunch of things um, in a world of climate change, everything else. These events are going to be, be more and more uh, frequent. Is it for the commercial world to, to do that or is it government-based thing? So I think it brings in a whole number of questions, really. I'd almost argue, is it a, yeah. new, I'd almost argue, is it a new story? Because you could simply say every insurer known to man will manage their risk portfolio and their appetite for risk on a hourly, daily, weekly, monthly basis, whether it's uh, UK weather, whether it's subsidence or or flood or whatever it may be. And they'd look at their risk and go, we've got too much. They won't issue an embargo, but they'll just stop writing it or price it out accordingly. The other thing that was discussed in, in the article was around putting a uh, a, a period of time that cover was ineffective until a certain cooling off period. And often we've seen that with storm insurance, for example, you might be able to buy storm insurance, but it's got a 30-day cooling off period for exactly this sort of reason. You don't want to be able to buy insurance and then get a payout within 24 hours. And that's what we saw with people like um, 
uh, Trove a while back. And I think Scott would have mentioned that, you know, you could buy gadget insurance immediately and then make a claim quite quickly. So you were investigating fraud, back to fraud cases. There was an issue in the, where a guy got stopped on the road for not having insurance. But by the time the cop got out of the car behind, he'd bought it on a, like a, a similar buy miles or a paper mile insurance thing and could demonstrate he had insurance at that time. So I actually think that this is a non-story non from an insurance perspective and actually probably more interesting around what at what point does the government step in like uh, flood re to go natural catastrophe or big issue, what do we do to help everyone here? I yeah. disagree. It's not a news story from an insurance perspective because I think there's probably an awful lot of people who live in Australia who did not know that that was a thing. I think there's probably an awful lot of people who thought we don't have insurance, we should buy it and didn't don't understand that that's how it works. Well, I think there's, there's a third part to this story, which is... Um, how insurance companies are actually required to do this to be customer centric, right? Like there is, as as Nigel was saying, saying there's there's a portfolio, and that portfolio is not just about bringing premium in; it's also about paying claims out, right? Like suddenly, if you completely change the the risk profile of that portfolio, which basically means that you are you are selling policies that have a guaranteed payout, which is what happens when you see the fire coming to your house, and that's when you buy a policy. You, you suddenly make that whole portfolio, um, you, you stop making it work, right? Which means that you would eventually stop paying claims as well. So I, I completely understand the the evil corporate story behind this. And, and I can see how it is tough for some users that need insurance in, in the moment. But I, I see how insurance companies are actually doing this to, to protect their existing um, customers as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's the kind of, the big picture on top of this, which kind of Nigel alluded to, which is um, really the impact of climate change and um, everyone's understanding of what the impact will be, both in terms of insurance and government. So Anthem, as we've been looking at this quite a lot, which is there is a lot more of these um, more volatile weather. So I think just today, um, Canada experienced one of the worst snowfalls on record at this time of year. And so actually the risk of weather-related um, claims is getting more volatile and insurers aren't geared up to, to kind of model for that. And also government on, on the other side aren't set up to deal with it. So actually, as an industry as a whole, um, I think we just need better understanding, uh, more technology around this, more data um, to, to be able to be equipped. But but it's, it's you know, I don't think it's wrong. The to data, I was just going to say, on the data side, this is the challenge with insurance for generations we keep going we can't write that because we haven't got 30 years of data um i think the climate change one's really interesting we will end up with something like flood re for the climate risks that we're in, we're seeing now i mean jeremy to your point it wasn't just the industry every single household in the uk pays something like six pounds whether you live near an affected area or not that will become the norm you'll see these climate issues come out of the standard insurance policy and the other one that we're starting to see at least in london market now and i think will go everywhere is uh, silent cyber so cyber exists everywhere um at some point, we'll end up with something like cybery that I, I still think that says everyone will pay something towards that because what happens if XYZ gets taken out and no one can transact or interact or whatever else that we do online these days? Yeah, it's um, it, I, you know, I agree with those points that this, things are going to have to change because it's not sustainable the way it is at the moment um, when we will um, watch that with hope. Uh, the next story is that Buy Miles has gotten its open banking license. Um, so Buy Miles has become the first insurer to, to get an open banking license uh, using it to make insurance more accessible. Um, so basically, uh, when with open banking, which is currently um, the, the regulation that applies largely to payments accounts or mostly to payment accounts, but uh, also to third parties who want to access information from payments account if you want to access the information you have to have a license um under what's called uh, an account information service provider license so by miles is the first insurtech to have got one of these um they uh, basically it means that by miles will be able to pay their monthly statements as well as to reduce occurrences of fraud by automatically verifying a customer's identity but i'm going to let uh, james blackham who is the co-founder and ceo of by miles tell us a bit more At BuyMiles, we're always trying to find ways to make insurance fairer and more accessible. Payments have always been a big part of insurance. At a very basic level, we take premiums from customers and we pay out claims. So we really wanted to be an early adopter of open banking. With open banking, we'll be able to make our insurance available to more people. 
for example, by allowing a customer with, on the face of it, a low credit score to actually demonstrate that they've met their monthly car insurance payments in the past. This will mean that drivers who could really benefit from the flexibility of our monthly pay-by-mile policy can now be offered one, including more vulnerable customers who might previously have had to take out a loan with a big APR to get their policy. In a nutshell, this is what open banking and PSD2 are all about. By giving individuals the ability to control the information that's associated with their accounts and to initiate payments, businesses like us can help them access better deals. This is part of a wider trend of convergence between fintech and insurtech as we move towards a broader understanding of financial services. The insurance industry has a lot to learn from open banking, particularly about becoming more open and transparent with customers. If insurance companies embrace this new world, they'll be able to design more flexible products that are better tailored to the people that use them, and more people will be able to access them. And if they don't, they may get left behind. Okay, so um, I think uh, James covered that pretty comprehensively there. I mean, from uh, my part, I'm excited to see um, insurers uh, getting in on the open banking action. Um, they're, you know, by, by no means is um, by miles the, the first uh, non-bank kind of uh, non-fintech to, to get one of these licenses. A lot of other very large companies have done so as well. Um, but my personal opinion is that we won't see the true benefits of open banking and open APIs until we have open finance, which is what the FCA has called it. Um, that's the idea that you will have um, APIs uh, into and out of every financial services product you own. Um, quick thoughts on this before we move on? I think it's incredibly cool. I think there, I agree with you that there are, um, this is just the beginning. We'll, we'll start seeing this develop way, way, way farther. But there are two fundamental concepts in what uh, James was talking about, which is A, embedding insurance and everything else from a payments perspective, from an accessibility perspective, that we'll only see more and more and more of that. And we very much believe on on that at Flock. For example, you can embed the sale of an, of an insurance policy when, I don't know, you take off with a drone or when you buy another financial product. So we'll, we'll start seeing more and more applications there. The second one is how data can actually make insurance more fair, right? Like, why would you be paying, as James was saying, uh, for a excruciating uh, premium when you actually are pretty good with your with your bills, but for some reason you've got a, a low credit score, right? Again, exactly the same thing we do at, at Flock. I think this, these concepts are only pushed farther by this ultra connectivity that uh, open banking provides. Brilliant. Yes, I think um, I think as we said there, you know, very very exciting. Definitely keeping an eye on that. Particularly, open banking is two years old now, and I think things are starting to pick up pace. So, um, one to watch with excitement. I, I heard excitement. it. <laughs> I, I'm just doing this just to annoy you now. Well, it's not me. We're keeping Hannah and Alex late, and they have to go home too. You can annoy me. Don't annoy the crew. They'll make you sound bad. Did you hear that? I can actually annoy Sarah. That's permission. Can we have that on loop for a bit? No, I'm joking. Do you want me to say I, something or I was not? Just saying, I, when I first heard this, I was like, why would we want to do this? I didn't actually understand the rationale that open banking would give us. Listening to James's explanation, I get the point about sharing data, almost like digital identity, to prove that you've got more um, credibility or you can pay your, your premiums and stuff. But then I, the counter to that is, isn't the buy miles policy in the first instance there to make life easier if you don't want an annually rated product in the first place? So as the two in my mind were kind of, I couldn't put the two together. So maybe I need a conversation with James. I think you need to go away and look at open banking a bit more closely. In fact, I've got a report and a blog you can look at. I'll send them to you later. Can't wait. I'm going to move us on now. So uh, the next story is that Grab is enabling travel insurance. So this came from FinTech News. Uh, Grab enables in-app travel insurance for as little as a dollar a day. Um, so Grab, which is uh, one of those apps that you uh, find um, in a lot of Asia, but this one comes from Singapore, um, starts off as a taxi app, ends up being a logistics app, delivers food, uh, doing a lot, quite a lot in financial services, actually, um, and they've moved into insurance. So it's a really... Um, holistic player. Uh, they've partnered with uh, Chubb um, and announced the launch of Travel Cover, an on-demand travel insurance service that Grab users can buy within that one app. Um, the first 20,000 customers are able to purchase Travel Cover at a discounted price of a dollar a day until the 29th of February for trips within the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, we've seen this isn't the first time we've seen this, certainly. Um, Revolut do something uh, similar. Uh, any Any thoughts? I think it's 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 just 
a really good demonstration of um, insurance being there when you need it, which I think, unfortunately, it's the only one right now. I, th- I feel like everyone around the table is like, we want more of this. We want to have see like in context insurance because we feel like the fu- that's the future. But this is o- the only real use case that, that we've seen. Um, and I, I think it's also... Uh, um, where just it's just seeing the trend of um, these apps having control of the customer, and so the insurers sitting behind it are, are more and more losing control of that end customer experience. Um, but but it seems like it just makes sense. I love it. I I think these things are table stakes, and everyone will get to this point ultimately. If you put the customer as the sun, Grab is the closest thing to that in my mind, or Revolut, whoever else, because they have that piece of distribution. Um, you're right, it's the only one we always think of because it's easy to explain and no one really needs, needs to know what travel insurance is. Although you could question and say, what do you think you're going to get for this? Because ultimately, the time you need travel insurance is that time of booking, not that time of getting to location or whatever else. So there's a slight glitch in it in my mind there, but I think these are, are absolutely brilliant. I think um, I think particularly uh, if you're looking at the part of the world that Grab operates in, um, I'm almost certain that this is actually targeting uh, non-locals in the sense of um, Singapore Airport, I believe, has a Grab hub. It's like a lounge. So when you lounge in Singapore, you know, you're escorted to the Grab lounge and, and that's where you wait for your Grab taxi. You know, like an, imagine like an Uber lounge, I guess, at Heathrow. That's pretty cool. Um, and so they may well be the sort of people who haven't thought about travel insurance until they get there. You know, you're looking at Asia, a lot of travel across Asia, you get a lot of young people, certainly from Europe and the US, who turn up there. Um, and we are always hearing horror stories about how they're not covered. They haven't got travel insurance and they end up with, you know, horrific medical bills and having to t- do things like awful things like crowdfund to get home. Um, so I think it's, I, 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 my, my suspicion is that that's the market that they're going after. I think as little as a dollar a day is an interesting pricing model, but it is only the first 20,000. I'd like to know what that is going to go up to. Um, after that initial introductory period. But yes, exactly, uh, you know, the point at which you need it or the point at which you suddenly think about it to be able to just go into the app that you've already got anyway and go, yes, please. That's that's the same concept of concept of embedded insurance, right? Like you you no longer need the customer to go to the insurer to buy insurance. Insurance goes to the customer, right? I think yeah, these these are the very first implementations of this, but we'll we'll only see more and more of this happening. Yeah, I feel um, like it's like cool, sexy insurance. You know? Well, even <laughs> even even for a non millennial, it sounds pretty pretty funky. But uh, from a business, if I'm looking at it as a business. Um, you know, it brings in different challenges, doesn't it? So the concept of a customer retention for a day, it's like acquiring them to start with. It's all about distribution and and then getting them to come back and buy, you know, so you're going to have to differentiate yourself on, you know, service. You can't just justify it on cost all the time because it won't make any money. So it's, it's an interesting thing. And having spent a lot of time in the Far East recently, I think – I can certainly see as a geography, it would really lend itself because you're always hopping on planes and traveling distance, you know, short distances. Yeah. And, and Grab is as ubiquitous because, you know, if you're traveling that part of the world and you're not necessarily comfortable, you don't speak the local language, if you have something like Grab, which you know how that yeah. works, you know, it's it's going to get you from A to B. Mm. I, was, I was very upset when I was in Singapore and tried to get an Uber and... Uh, I couldn't get an Uber. They yeah. had their own version. Just switch to Grab. Yeah. <laughs> the, the real proof of the pudding for any of these services comes not in the not in the acquisition of customer because that's easy if you're a, a Revolut yeah. or a um, a Grab or whoever owns the customer. The real pro- the real proof of the pudding is obviously in the claim. So right. should you need to claim, I'm assuming it gets back to off to Chubb in this instance. What's that experience like? And is it as simple, straightforward, straight through, frictionless as the acquisition and toggle yeah. in the first place? That would be interesting to see. Um, all right, I'm going to move us on. Uh, so, and finally today, uh, we are going to talk about the fact that GetSafe has launched in the UK. So, GetSafe uh, is a German neo-insurance company, and it's brought its contents insurance app to the UK, according to TechCrunch. To find out more about this, uh, I interviewed GetSafe CEO and co-founder Christian Veens. Christian, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. That's really exciting now that we are live in kind of the country you're based in. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. So perfectly timed. Um, can you start us off by giving us a quick explanation of what GetSafe is? Sure. GetSafe is, uh, I mean, you said this in your introduction, we call ourselves a neo-insurance company. And what does it mean is that we have built an insurance company from the ground up to really work 
for the millennial and Gen Z generation. So for people that don't want to go to a broker and are used to do everything on their mobile phone, so we are an insurance company that works exclusively and completely on your mobile phone without any paperwork, agents, and so on involved. And we offer a range of insurance products. So our customers are very young and they get to know us when they're very young and then they can build their whole insurance coverage and protection with us over time. So at the end, we want to be a lifelong companion for them. So um, so how did the, the idea of the company come about? You know, what, what problems did you see that you thought, oh, well, we can solve those? Yeah, it, that was a little bit funny because, I mean, I, I was like, um, I finished university and then I thought uh, I knew everything in every aspect of life, but I, I obviously didn't. And, <laughs> Everybody does. And I had, Everybody does when they finish university. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you think to be a superstar. But, but then, like, um, I did engineer, mechanical engineering back then, and, and, and so I had nothing to do with financial services and insurance in general. But I had my first damage or claim with my landlord because I broke something he owned in the, in the basement. So long, long story short, I went to my parents, asked them, hey, do I still have insurance with you guys? Because I am not covered for myself. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, I had no idea about what to get as a graduate in terms of insurance. And they told me, that was kind of the first time they showed me their portfolio of insurance folders with like, I don't know how many policies they have because they also own a business, but it was definitely more than 10 or 15 from different carriers, they had multiple brokers, and they told me, to be honest, we have so much stuff. We spend thousands of, of euros for insurance every year, but we can't tell you if you're still covered with us or not. We have to find out next Monday because it was a Saturday. And then I got really intrigued because um, they had they spent so much money. They had no transparency and idea. They hadn't like uh, an overview of, of what they paid for. And they hadn't one like touch point they could call when something happened, and and I felt that uh, as a tech guy I could do this way better. And that's that's was the moment when I got intrigued. And then I only found it get saved one and a half years later, uh, when I also met my co-founder Marius. And and yeah, and then things got going. So it's almost like um, uh, many people uh, who, who found InsureTechs talk about you know, the problem being that people are underinsured. They don't have enough insurance. But it almost sounds like uh, GetSafe came into being from the opposite problem about being <laughs> overinsured. Yeah, I, I don't know if they are overinsured. P- probably yes. Uh, probably yes, especially if they worked with different brokers and had, have this business. And so probably they had too much insurance. But that's exactly the problem of, of an industry that is intransparent, that you don't know that. You don't know if you have gaps or overinsurance and pay too much. And that, that, that's why we have like said for us that we don't even want to build one product and make one type of insurance, like let's say home insurance or motor insurance better. But we wanna, really want to make the whole thing better for customers, creating a solution uh, that creates consistent coverage throughout your life. So, so is, what sort of demographic are you, are you targeting with the company then? Is it, is it that sort of um, the group that you just mentioned, sort of people of your parents' age who have multiple policies, uh, or is it perhaps people who, um, you know, were, were like you were at the beginning and had, had no policies, or is it all of the above? It was, it was kind of uh, my, my parents' generation first, because that's, that's when I encountered the problem, and we thought it would be a good idea when we launched back in 2015 um, to offer kind of a like yeah, a digital mobile insurance folder for people that had a lot of insurance. But then we found that from all the customers that we had, like only the young customers were the ones really engaging with us. First of all, because they kind of really embraced mobile technology and were able to use apps probably and enjoyed that experience. And secondly, because they were the ones in a life situation, let's say between 20 and 40, where a lot of things still happen in your life and you need to get covered because you have triggers in, in your life and buy a, buy a house and move in together, switch job, move to another country, all this kind of stuff, go traveling a lot. And, and that's all things that trigger insurance. So we saw that the engagement and the satisfaction rates and everything for people under 35 were way, way higher for people over 50. And that's when we decided to kind of focus our business and pivot it even a little bit into just serving that demographic. So today, 
uh, GetSafe is really the insurance company, at least in Germany, and we hope to do that in the UK too, for people between 20 and 30 that are buying insurance for the first time in their lives. So at least 75% of our customers have never bought insurance before anywhere else. And, and we believe that that is the generation we want to solve a problem for, giving them a super easy access they enjoy and understand. And then also a solution that lets them not end up like my parents ended up at the end of the day when they are 51 day. <laughs> with, with so many different insurance policies, they don't know what they're covered for. Yeah, right. Um, so you mentioned it there, you know, we talked about it at the beginning of the show that you've just launched in the UK. Um, so can you give us a quick rundown of, of what's happened so far? So what, what is actually launched in the UK? We launched in the UK with our app. I mean, we are mobile only. That means, as you know it from Challenger Banks, you can do everything in the app with us. But we launched with one specific product, which is a home contents insurance, um, which is also the kind of first product we had here in Germany. And it's also always the kind of first product we, we use to launch a new market. Now, the UK is our second market after Germany, but we have plans to go all over Europe, of course. And we feel that kind of home contents insurance for young renters is kind of the right starting point because it's not a too small insurance like a smartphone coverage or electronics coverage. It is more substantial, but also in, like home is one bigger category for us. So we, we cut insurance in four categories. One is like everything around your home, which includes home contents, but also bike insurance and this kind of stuff. The other one is mobility, as we call it, which includes also car insurance, but also like other kinds of insurance. And the other one is health and life. And like home is kind of the first category you always want to start with. And in the UK, we have this great home contents insurance that you can get and then like manage on the on your app. But we will add more products over time there too. Brilliant. Um, so why the UK though? Why? So you're, you're in Germany and the UK, those are the only two markets at the moment. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So why was the UK your, your second choice of market? Why, why here? That's a great question that I hear a lot. And uh, of course, we thought about that a lot too. Um, for us, it was not so much about looking at countries or at similarities in terms of technical insurance and if regulations and like products are similar, but more in terms of potential. And if you look at Europe in total, uh, um, the UK by, by pure premiums that customers pay is the largest insurance market in, in Europe. Then comes Germany, which has a bigger population, but still in the UK, you have more health and life insurance that you need to pay. So that's why the premiums are higher there. And so this is one reason, of course, it's, one, it's the biggest market. Um, and the second reason is that we saw that um, financial services on smartphones went really well and had a boom in the UK, like fintech in general, um, way more than other, other countries in Europe um, in, the, in the last years. Like everything from Revolut and Monzo, like the Challenger Banks or Starling Bank, to TransferWise and other services. But we see that there is a gap for insurance. So there's not something like a neo-insurance, as we call ourselves, um, that you get in the, can get in the UK. And that's why we saw this gap and, and wanted to fill it. So it sounds like there's, you know, a, a large market here. It sounds like there's a gap in the market. Um, much as I hate to bring it up, what about the B word? What about Brexit? Will, uh, you know, would that have any implications from your part? And perhaps, you know, what um, what steps have you taken to, to make sure it doesn't have any impact? Yeah, I mean, the B word, as you call it, I didn't even know you, you call it like this <laughs> over there. But like the B word for us, of course, was something we were aware of. And first of all, for us as a, as a tech company, because we are a, a tech company doing insurance, not the other way around, like 80% of our people are working in tech and not in call centers or, or customer service. And for us, it was a way to also prove that technology knows no borders and regulations and is independent from politics. That, that's an important statement for us. So after we knew that there will be kind of a hard Brexit, um, we we didn't like draw back, but we wanted to redo that. And the only thing that we changed in our plans is that usually um, you can passport in Europe. That means you can sell financial services and insurance if you have one license in one country to all the other countries without having to set up a company there and entity there. And that's the only thing we have to change. So we, we set up a limited in the UK to really be independent and have an independent UK 
based entity there, um, yeah, mainly for protecting customers. Um, so generally, the business is now independent from like everything that happens across borders, um, and it's a UK uh, registered company. Brilliant. So it's it's a separate entity then. Um, it can operate on its own, no matter what happens with Brexit. Right. Yeah. Um, so we talked, uh, you know, a little bit um, there. You mentioned that one of the reasons you wanted to come to the UK was because, you know, we, you'd seen an awful lot of uh, mobile-based innovation and financial services here, and perhaps maybe less um, in in insurance in the insure tech space. Um, what what have you seen that's really interesting and exciting in the insure tech space in the last few years? It doesn't have to be in the UK, um, but I'm thinking uh, about maybe you know, as you say, digital only products. Maybe some of the artificial intelligence powered assistance. Uh, you know, digital only claims. Which of these sort of innovations is is most interesting to you? That's a good question because there's a lot of stuff going on, as you as you obviously know. But what I believe is that we're still at day one uh, in InsureTech. It's such a big industry, and what has happened in InsureTech so far, even with billions of, of of euros or dollars or pounds being like in like have been invested into this vertical. Um, uh, so for me, also like the the separation of fintech and insurtech is something that has really evolved and happened only in the in the past few years. Before that, a lot of people like put it in one like in the same pot. Um, and for me, what's really interesting is um, one of the things you mentioned is AI. Like, how can we make insurance companies more enjoyable for customers, also keep prices more stable and predictable um, through um, yeah, I mean, substituting kind of a lot of kind of human work that is involved in insurance, not only in distribution, but also in the call centers, claim centers. Like what we found is that every transaction, whatever you want to do with an insurance co- uh, policy or an insurance company, every interaction, being a changing your address, changing your bank account or credit card, changing the terms or the deductible of the policy itself, it all goes through human hands. Uh, the claims obviously all do, but also other stuff does. And this, of course, tasks that can be really automated. And on the other hand, what we see is that what's really lacking in the industry is true, smart advice, even for young customers that need to get some education around insurance and, and some orientation also, because brokers don't want to sell cheap products anymore because they don't get enough commissions. So they focus on more like valuable customers in the UK, you can't even get commissions for selling life insurance anymore, which is a regulation that we expect to come to all over Europe and to have the right incentives. But then again, it becomes expensive to get advice, true advice for, for, for life insurance. And I think putting more effort and like also personal support in these areas that really require a smart human touch and taking them away from all the like standard tasks um, is a big trend I see that makes a lot of sense. The other one, other thing is, of course, data. I mean, there's no product or service that is probably so defined by data as insurance is, because essentially, if you buy an insurance, you're buying uh, into an algorithm of an actuary uh, that calculates your risk and gives you a price. And then if some things are true or false, you get paid when you have a claim. So I think data can change this a lot, again, to make it more predictable, to make it smarter and faster for customers to better understand when they need what and to also help them in a better and smarter way when they have a claim and not just paying out money two months later, but really supporting them directly after the claim. So that's kind of the trends I see there. Many of them, but like AI and like data are probably the most interesting ones. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for that overview. Um, so, uh, you know, it's been great to talk to you today. It's been great to hear, you know, uh, what you're up to um, and, you know, why you're coming to the UK. Um, my final question is, uh, you know, what's next? Where are you hoping to take Get Safe in the future? Do you, do you have any other exciting plans you can give us a hint about or broader plans you'd like to tell tell our listeners about? Sure. Um, I think that uh, we talked a lot about technical stuff or regulations and this kind of stuff. Or I talked about this. What I believe that is really missing is in insurance is is building brands that people love and can relate to, and maybe also be be interested to use on a not perhaps daily but weekly, monthly basis. So we see that we have a lot of engagement with our customers again because they're young, because we are mobile, 
because we offer, offer some more stuff than just insurance in our app, also a lot of content. And so we see that a third of our users are kind of using the app every month already. That's not like, like they use Instagram or TikTok or other stuff, but it goes more in an engagement kind of driven product direction. And so for us, it's really building uh, a European brand uh, in insurance that millennials really love, that they can relate to and that has another kind of touch and feel than Allianz or AXA, all the big old names that young people can't relate to. And I think that insurance has the potential. It's a very beautiful concept and product and, and like deserves kind of a better relationship between customers and the brands themselves. And so we, we believe that brand and building an interesting, fun, fun, like an enjoyable brand is something that will happen and what we will focus on and bringing that to all European countries is definitely our next step for 2020 and 2021. Brilliant. Well, that sounds super exciting. Uh, do keep us up to date with, um, with you know, what comes next for you. And, and we'll be watching your, your UK launch uh, with great interest over here. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Christian. Uh, where can people find out more about you um, and what you're doing with GetSafe? Do you have a Twitter account or a website you'd like to tell people about? Yeah, sure. I mean, thanks for asking. The, the website is pretty simple. It's hellogetsafe.com. And then, of course, you're rooted to the to the page of, of your country directly. And, of course, to all the UK friends or UK-based friends. I know that a lot of, a lot of Germans also live, live in London. Feel free to test, to give it a test. And if you want to give us any feedback, you can also feel free to contact me directly on LinkedIn. That's what I use most. It's Kristen Beans. You find me there directly. And uh, thanks a lot for having me. Anytime. Thank you very much, Christian. Thank you very much, Christian. So that wraps up the new show today. Thank you so much to everyone for joining me. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you, Sophie? Um, you can find me on Twitter, um, at Sophie Winwood. Or um, if you are a uh, new InsurTech startup and you want to chat funding or anything else, uh, my email is sophieanthemis.com. Brilliant. Jeremy, how about you? Yeah, um, you can find more about us uh, online at legerityfinancials.com and Legerity Limited on LinkedIn and Twitter. Brilliant. Anton, how about you? You can find more about Flock at flockcover.com. That is F-L-O-C-K-C-O-V-E-R.com. Or on Twitter at flockcover. If you want to follow me, I'm Anton P on Twitter, which is A-N-T-T-O-N-P. Brilliant. There you go. Thank you very much. Nigel. Fighting the good cause at Nigel Walsh on Twitter. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter, putting Nigel down at Sarah Kachansky. Oh. That wraps up another InsurTech Insider. Thank you so much to uh, my guests today, to Jeremy, Sophie, Anton and Christian, and of course to Nigel. Uh, as always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsurTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>